Well, I want to first say that it's great to be here in the sanctuary preaching. Even though it's empty, it feels good to be in this space. And I look forward to the day when we can all be here together again. I want to begin my sermon with a little story. Um, I, uh, I had my growth spurt uh, between fifth and sixth grades. And over that summer, I went from being a short and chubby, uh, bookish, uncoordinated kid with glasses to being a tall and lanky, uncoordinated bookish kid with glasses. My growth spurt also coordinated with a move to a new town and a new school. So while kids at my old school knew not to choose me for sports because I was bookish and uncoordinated, at my new school, no one had figured that out yet. Instead, they only saw a tall kid and they assumed that I'd be great at basketball. The kids at my new school didn't know that I couldn't play basketball to save my life and that I probably had cost my parents hundreds of dollars in replacement frames for all the glasses that I'd broken trying to catch basketballs with my face instead of my hands. Now, the chance to start over, socially felt uh, speaking, was really exciting to me, but I felt like I was in a real bind. I wanted to be one of the cool athletic kids in my new school, but I knew that in order to be uh, an insider, uh, that, I, I, that I wouldn't be an insider once the kids knew how uncoordinated I was. Now, a pathway to belonging opened up for me when I met David. David, like me, had an early middle school growth spurt, making us the two tallest kids in our grade. Yet unlike me, David was athletic and coordinated and sporty, all the things that I wanted to be. So I quickly learned that I could fit in with the cool athletic group if I hung out with David and strategically avoided playing sports while simultaneously appearing sporty. So I started to dress like David and I wore athletic clothing for sports that I had no capacity to play nor really any interest in. And I convinced my mom to buy me caps and jerseys and basketball shorts and eventually the crowning glory of any middle school kid in the 80s or 90s, Air Jordan sneakers. I thought that in order to belong to this group, I needed to hide the bookish and uncoordinated me by draping my gangly frame in ridiculously overpriced and oversized sports merch. My junior high example of trying to fit in is a trite example, but I imagine that many of us can think back to a time when we felt this crushing desire to belong, to be part of something better, bigger than ourselves and to fit in. The question of who does and doesn't belong is a major concern in the worlds of the Bible too. Many of Jesus' parables and teachings argue that conventional notions of who's inside or outside the group no longer apply. God's love, as we know, is for the whole world. No matter who you are, you don't even need Air Jordans to fit in. Well, this is precisely what's going on with our reading this morning where we join Philip the Evangelist on this desert road, racing up to a chariot commanded by an unnamed Ethiopian eunuch. The story demonstrates how when you think you're living on the margins, you actually have been discovered at the very center of God's love. So in our reading, the author of Acts, who we think is Luke, gives us some interesting clues about this charioteer's identity. Philip could identify that this person was from sub-Saharan Africa because of the color of their skin. 
He could infer their rank and status by the quality of their chariot. And Philip that would know that he was looking at a eunuch because unlike almost all men in the day, the eunuch would have been missing a very prominent feature of their anatomy, a, a beard. <laughs> almost all men in the ancient world grew luscious beards, which would have been conspicuously absent from eunuchs. While largely unknown today, eunuchs were quite common in the ancient world, and they served powerful roles in royal households. More often than not, a eunuch would have started their life as a prisoner of war. A young boy would have been captured, dismembered or castrated, depending on the regional practice, and conscripted or sold into the position of service. The jobs most frequently given to eunuchs were either to protect the king's harem or to serve as an advisor to the queen, as in the case of the eunuch here in Acts chapter eight. This detail is really important for us to know because it tells us something about the eunuch's life. They had been made visible and perpetual outsiders. In a world that was structured around gender binaries, they occupied a liminal space between genders. In a world that relied on offspring and descendants to continue one's legacy or to provide care as one aged, they would never know a family. While they would have had comfort and access to great wealth and influence, none of these things belonged to them and they never fully belonged to the world of the court that they inhabited. So how did this eunuch, how did they find themselves going to Jerusalem or coming back from Jerusalem and reading this scroll from Isaiah in the first place? Well, the eunuch would have likely have been known as, or would have been what's called a, a God-fearer, a Gentile who found themselves drawn into the poetry and prayer and promise of the God of the Hebrew Bible. They may have heard stories of God's creation, God's faithful dealings with broken people like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And maybe they felt a stirring of hope when they heard of God's liberating power to free the enslaved Hebrews in Egypt. Perhaps also this eunuch had read snippets of prophecy, prophets who described God's eventual plan to make one family out of all the nations of the earth, freeing all from enslavement and oppression and violence. I imagine that such a promise of freedom and family would have felt like an intoxicating dream to someone who by design, by someone else's design, was denied both freedom and family. I like to think that the eunuch found themselves captivated by the rhythm of prayer in ancient Judaism, which like our own church, centers around a daily recitation of the Psalms. These hymns and prayers in the Psalter of a borrowed people became the eunuch's own language of prayer, sustaining them in the midst of a life lived on the margins. Yet while these promises and prayers would have swirled around the heart and mind, the eunuch would also have been an outsider within the Jewish community of his day. They may have been able to learn the prayers, but they couldn't join the synagogue. They may have had the desire to offer worship, but they would have been barred from the temple. The law of Moses prohibited the practice that made someone a eunuch and considered a eunuch to be separate from the community. Yet in spite of all of this, they felt sufficiently drawn to God to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. We don't know much about this, but I like to imagine that they had planned carefully for this trip, 
choosing intentionally to come to Jerusalem at this time of year so that they could witness the great celebrations that surrounded the high feast of Passover, the, which commemorates the exodus uh, and liberation of God's people from bondage in Egypt, and also 50 days later, the Pentecost feast, which celebrates the giving of the law to Moses on Sinai. Maybe this trip had been their life's dream. Maybe they had saved for decades to afford the expense to go the 2,500 miles from Ethiopia all the way up to the Holy Land. Maybe they had arranged some sort of special dispensation from the queen to allow them this once-in-a-lifetime sabbatical pilgrimage. And I wonder, I wonder, you know, given the timing of the story in the book of Acts, could the eunuch have been there on the same last week that Jesus spent in Jerusalem? the same week that covered his own passion and Passover? What if the eunuch had walked around the perimeters of the temple, through the narrow lanes of the temple market, when they saw a raving Galilean prophet turning over tables and chasing out merchants, crying for the temple to be restored to a house of prayer, not simply a tourist destination? What if this eunuch happened to witness the same prophet riding on the back of a donkey down the steep and bumpy road from the Mount of Olives into the gates of Jerusalem? Could they have heard the shouts of Hosanna and felt the energy of the crowd as they expected the arrival of their new savior and their new king? Would this visitor from Ethiopia have made the, what would they have made of the commotion created by the crucifixion of the same prophet days later, who was mockingly acclaimed as the king of the Jews? Would the eunuch have noticed the fear and confusion that fell over the city like a pall when Jesus died and was taken away? Maybe once the Passover had ended and the crowds had dissipated, the eunuch decided to continue their journey through the Holy Land, visiting the tombs of prophets, noting the mountain where Moses was said to have died, stepping into the waters of the Jordan, remembering how Joshua crossed over into the promised land. I like to think that after spending a few weeks exploring the sites of the Holy Land, the eunuch made their way home with one last trip through Jerusalem, perhaps again coinciding with the Feast of the Pentecost. It's conceivable that early one morning, they found themselves in a diverse crowd of other pilgrims who were on their way to the temple. They happened to pass by a nondescript home on the outskirts of Jerusalem, and as they walk under an open window on the, uh, on the upper floor, maybe their ears prick as they hear their mother tongue. In the language of home, they hear a group of exuberant Galilean fishermen telling the story of how their great teacher had died, but had been raised from the dead, and a new world was beginning. What a pilgrimage this would have been for the eunuch. What kind of stories would they have had to share with their friends back home? Yes, I saw the temple. It wasn't as big as I thought it was going to be. Yes, I tried the food. Here, I brought back a, a bag of zatar and some dates from Jericho. It was everything that I had hoped for, yet, yet there was this unrest too. There was this prophet who had been killed, but some say he came back to life, but I don't know what it means. As the eunuch prepares to leave Jerusalem, they decide to buy just one last souvenir for themselves, a souvenir, a scroll, a scroll of Isaiah, so that they can have something to read on this long, weeks-long, bumpy, dusty journey home. And this is where we leave our imagination and the story of scripture begins. 
the eunuch having experienced an unexpectedly wild trip to Jerusalem is met unexpected, unexpectedly in the wilds of the desert by Philip the evangelist, who hears him reading from the same souvenir scroll. Philip sees this person for who they are. Ethiopian, yes. Eunuch, yes. Holding a position of influence, yes. A God-fearer with an open heart, yes. Philip sees all of these parallel and maybe at times conflicting identities and also sees a deeper truth within the eunuch, that this one, this person is not an outsider. They are beautiful, they are beloved, and they belong to the family of God. What the world puts on the margins, the gospel places in the center of God's love. My sporty middle school friends eventually realized that underneath my Air Jordans, I was still a bookish and uncoordinated kid who couldn't play ball. And I realized that I needed to find myself a community where I could belong, truly belong, not as an imposter, but as the person who I was called by God to be. And for me, this community took the form of the church, where I found belonging and acceptance and love, broken glasses and all. When people ask me why I still care about the church, even though so much sin and evil have been committed erroneously in God's name, I come back to this story, the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. And I find myself drawn from the margins into the center of God's love for this world. The God whom we worship sees us as beautiful, calls us as God's beloved, and has a place for us to belong. Amen.